0: Alright, well it's time now for our Philippians 1-6 testimony. I'm going to ask if Curtis McBroom would come up. And uh, just as a way of reminder, Philippians 1-6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so what God has promised is that if he has begun a good work in you, meaning that if he has saved you, if he's uh, forgiven you of your sins, that he's going to complete that good work that He has begun in you at the day of Jesus Christ, and and so what we want to do is every week we get to hear from a different church member, so that you get to know them better. You get to hear their story of how God saved them and how He brought them to faith. And so this morning we asked Curtis McBroom to come up and to share with us. And so the first question that we ask every week is, "How did you become a believer?" Well, you know, uh,
1: my family's been involved in church since I was a little fellow in the nursery. And, um, you know, uh, at six years old, I had really good Sunday school teachers and, um, mom and dad had, uh, talked to me about the gospel. And, you know, even as a little child, I was only six, but, uh, I realized that I needed Jesus. So I, one Sunday, I just, I was sitting, we had to sit in front of mom because we misbehaved. And so, uh, mom, uh, it was keeping an eye on us, and Ellen got up and went forward, and I got to thinking about my situation. I needed, you know, to be saved. I needed to be baptized and be a part of this church. And so uh, I went forward, and, and like I say, I was very fortunate. I'm very thankful that my mom and dad just didn't bring me to church. Mm. They sat in church with me and, uh, you know, kept an eye on me. And, of course, you know, there was... Uh, I met my wife in church. I mean, there's just so many things that uh, was connected with uh, my faith. And so met Beck, and, uh, you know, she was kind of cute, you know. <laughs> so, and, of course, it was kind of funny. I was uh, graduated from high school and went off to college for a while. And I kind of went astray a little bit. And, of course, I flunked out of school. You know how that works. You, you can't goof off, guys, and go to school and so I came home and went to work, got a job at Philip Morris. And one day, my mother asked me, she "Said, what are you going to do about Beck?" I said, "What do you mean? What am I going to do? Well, you've been dating her for a while. What's going on?" I said, "Well, I don't know." And then Beck's mom, if you ever meet her, she's real upfront, Jake. She just lays it out. She says, "What's your intentions with my daughter?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to marry her." And of course, her smart aleck brother made this comment. He said, "Well, you know, the other guy that she dated was..." Blind in one eye, can't see out of the other. So I don't know what that meant about Beck. But anyway, we got married, and we just enjoyed being a part of the church and raised the boys in the church and uh, had a, a little group of young, like you all have, with young married and babies and all of that. And so it was just a real, real blessing. So, you know, I would encourage parents to bring their children to church because Beck and I, we were talking today, we did every job in the church. She was youth minister, I was in leadership, we even were janitors at the church a couple of times. So God's really been good to me. You know, and Mm -hmm. I had to include all that because all of that's part of my faith walk and it it's been so vital and important to me. I enjoyed every bit of it, you know, even the bad times.
0: Yeah. Well that's great. Well yeah. I think what's great to hear is that through the influence of Sunday school teachers and through the influence of parents. Oh yeah. uh, I think it's easy to forget how, how much you can be an influencer on, on either your children or also the kids that you may be teaching week to week. Trust me, I know that sometimes it feels like you're getting nowhere and, yeah. you, and they're learning nothing. Yeah. But but you, we hear from Curtis's testimony that, that that's how the gospel took, took hold in his life and, and God used that. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So then the second question is, what is a season in your life that God used to grow you? You know, this is a tough question. For
1: one reason, you know... When you get to be my age, and I'm not that old, but I've had a few things happen. I mean, life's tough, and everybody here has had things and seasons, but I have to go back to the one thing that was the most earth-shattering thing, the loss of a child. And the reason it was difficult for Beck and I is because the situation, it was crib deaths, you know, and you have to be investigated because they have to make sure the home's not... The cause of that. And of course, the day was a terrible day when all this happened. It had it had, uh, had an ice storm, you know, and the EMS trucks, which were just starting to run, one of them wrecked going to our house. One of the people from the church was able to make it to the house, but they couldn't get out. So, you know, it was just very traumatic. And I was at work, I was working at Philip Morris, and I couldn't hardly get home. And when we did meet up at the hospital, it was just a terrible thing. But then again, all my church people were so faithful and kind to me. But if you ever have this happen to you, the other thing that happens is you begin to say, now, what did I do wrong? Because, you know, like we know now, there's things you can do with little babies associated with that kind of thing that are, you know, help, that uh, guard against the monitors and how you lay them in the bed. Mm -hmm. And, of course, my mom and dad had been through <clears throat> similar circumstances. I shouldn't get emotional. I've talked about this a dozen times. But anyway, my older brother died of a similar situation. So they were very helpful uh, because they talked to me about things. And, and my dad didn't too much, but mom and I would have long talks about uh, how to raise children, and my worries, and my frets. And my dad, being a monument man, made up a stone. And I'm going to read to you what he put on there. It's very familiar, but he put this on this headstone for this little baby. And it's kind of stuck with me, Jake, all my life. He said, you know where Job is distraught after all that happened to him? In the first uh, of Job, the, I think it's verses... Uh, It's in the latter part of the first chapter. And he says, naked I came into this world from my mother's womb, and naked I shall leave. And then he says these words, the Lord gave, and the Lord uh, have taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And man, I thought, how in the world is this going to work out? I mean, I was so confused. I'd been a Christian all my life. And I was like many people that come to church every Sunday. And you all have just seen the last few days Uh, First we had, uh, well, the Kirk family, the things they've been through. Life is tough, and things happen, and there's not answers for all of this other than say God's will should be done. And so it put me on a search. And one of the uh, books in the Bible that I just got into was Romans 8, Mm. where he says, you know, uh, we know that all things... that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been a called according to His purpose. Yeah. And I thought, how does this work out? How can something this heart-wrenching and hard and, and bad for me cause me to be a better Christian? And then I began to realize, you know, uh, everything that's been done for me from the first verse in Romans uh, 8, there's therefore now no condemnation. I had to re-examine who I was in Christ, that God's not mad at me. Hmm. This didn't happen to me because I'm a bad person. It just happened because God is God and he's in charge. And then as I went through further in that passage, if you'll read just what I quoted, and then says, who should hold anything to God's elect? It's God. Nay, in all things, we're more than conquerors. And even now, I, I, I weep when I think about this because I see people all the time that want to manipulate their salvation and be in the right standing with God. And we don't have to do that. We're free in Christ. Jesus paid the ransom for us. Yeah. We're free. And so we can be free. And, and the attitude it gave me is I changed. I, instead of saying, boy, i got to go to church. Boy, i got to do this with the deacons. Boy, i got to teach Sunday school. Now it's yeah. I get to go do this. Yeah. I enjoy doing this. And this message is good for people who are lost and struggling. And so after all of that, Jake, I'd have to say that moment brought me to a closer walk with with Christ. And I realized who I was in Christ. Man, that's the best thing there is. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, let me tell you something. Don't make it church attendance. Don't make it doing the right thing. Just turn loose and let Jesus be Lord of your life. And, boy, he'll bless you. I've got a great family. Matt and Nathan's overseas, and I love them. And, man, I've got a great family. And it's because of what Christ has done. I didn't do anything. I just accepted it. Wow. I know it's a long statement there, but in in that, I just want you to understand. I stand here today because of not only people sharing the gospel with me, but Mm. for what Christ has done for me. Not because I'm special, but because he is.
0: Wow, that, that's the second week in a row that we've heard that God has used a tragedy in, in someone's life in order to grow them. Last week it was Erica Overstreet with, with um, miscarriages, uh, yeah. and obviously how heart-wrenching and difficult that is. But God has used that difficult circumstance and this difficult circumstance to grow people. Wow, that's incredible. So the last question, which, as Josh says every week, is probably the hardest. Yeah, it is. It's very hard. How is God growing you now? Well, you know, I don't know.
1: I I mean, I say that with all honesty because Beck and I were involved in a church and very comfortable, weren't we, Hunt? What we were doing, we just, but we knew that the leadership there, it just, something just wasn't where we needed to be. And I'm not trying to criticize anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about our walk. And so that's why we felt a need to leave. And the first day when I, when I came forward and took Josh's hand, this is exactly what I told him. You don't need me. I need a church. I need a church to worship and to serve God. And that's what I want to do. And I don't know what that means. You know, I've learned that you have to trust God. Uh, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. And so I've kind of just made that the byword and Beck and I are here for this season, and we want to work with you all. We want to worship with you all. We want to love on you all. We want to be a part of this body, and I'm having a great time, uh, you know, and Becky is too. She She's a hard worker, and so we just we just love it here. And so... Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm really wanting God to show me what the next, because yeah. we're retired now, and what the next step that might be, Jake, I, I really don't know. But I'm willing to do uh, what he wants me to do because it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm having a good time.
0: Well, that's awesome. Well, yeah. God is using the local church, our local church, in order to, to continue to grow Curtis now. So join me as we pray for Curtis. God, we are so grateful this morning to, to hear the testimony of a man who has been through some incredibly hard times in life. And God, we learn that, that you use people such as Sunday school teachers that maybe feel like they're not getting anywhere with what they're teaching. And, and you use parents that, that maybe just feel like they're, they don't know what they're doing or, or they don't have control of their kids, but yet you use people like this to impact people like Curtis, to share the gospel, that they would know the good news about Jesus. And God, we also have learned that you use difficult circumstances in our life, such as the death of a child, to grow people, to draw us closer to you, to help us depend on you. And so God, although that is hard and that is difficult, we praise you that you are doing this work to draw us to yourself. And God, we also thank you that you are using our local church to continue to grow Curtis and Becky. God, we pray that, that we would continue to be a good church to them and that they would continue to be a good church to us. God, we are thankful for the people that you have placed in our life and in our church. God, we, we thank you so much for what you're doing in Curtis's life and we look forward to, to what you're going to continue to do in his life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother everybody Thanks That's great Well, thank you, Curtis. Um, we will be in Mark chapter eight this morning, so open your Bibles to Mark 8. I did not happen to look that up in the Pew Bible, so I don't, don't know exactly where that is, but but we're going to continue in our series through, through the Gospel of Mark and um, Josh is not here this morning. He is preaching at a church in uh, North Carolina. It is not in view of a call, so don't worry. Uh, he is just um, preaching for, for someone who who asked him to preach. He had never been to this church before, but uh, had some relationships with some people there, and so he was happy to do that, and then they will be headed back here uh, to Louisville. And so he, he told me to make sure that I I'm, I let you all know that he is excited and anxious to be back um, but it's been a good time for him and his family to spend the holidays with some family and friends. So so Josh is, is away this morning, but, but we're going to continue through, through our series in, in Mark, and so we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, and we'll be looking at just a few short verses this morning, verses 27 through 30. So uh, be turning there, and, and let's, let's pray before we get started. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that we were able to meet and, and gather together and Sing together, proclaim the, the good news about Jesus together. God, we are most excited now that we get to open the Word of God together. That we get to hear the Word of God explained and that we get to see what it is that you are teaching us about yourself. So God, we ask this morning that you would free our minds from distraction. That you would help us to focus on this text you could help us to learn about your son Jesus and about your goodness through this passage. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, let's read verses 27 through 30. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Kind of an interesting little passage here, we we have covered larger portions up to this point, but now we focus just on these, these few verses here, and what we find is really something quite amazing. We find an amazing confession by one of the disciples about who Jesus is. So as I was thinking about this, and, and over the course of the week, you all, most of you, if, if you know me at all, you know that I'm a, a giant New York Mets fan. So, it's kind of, right now, is, is really just off-season, since baseball is not in-season. Uh, football's going on, that's great, and, you know, you've got basketball, which is boring, but baseball is coming, all right? And so, a couple of years ago, Matt Harvey, who's a pitcher for the New York Mets, was having just a, a breakout year, and so he actually got to start in the All-Star Game, which is, happens in the middle of the season, it's in the middle of summer. Uh, and it's a big deal to get voted in to start the All-Star Game. And so the All-Star Game just happened to be at the, the New York Mets stadium, which was also cool. So he gets to start the All-Star Game in the stadium that he pitches in for a living, which is great. And so one of these late-night host guys thought it would be a great idea that we should get Matt Harvey to walk around on the streets in New York and to interview New York fans about what they thought about Matt Harvey. So here's Matt Harvey, the stud all-star pitcher who's out on the streets acting as a reporter and asking people with Mets hats and Mets shirts on what they thought about him. And it's really interesting because a lot of people don't recognize him. And he's holding a little baseball card of himself. Uh, and so he's asking people, hey, what do you think about Matt Harvey? And a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, he's, he's good, but uh, I, just, I just really want to see him prove himself. You know, he hasn't really done anything. He's had, a, he's had a short spurt of brilliance, but we need to see it over time. And he said, you know, well, well, if you had any advice for him, what would you say? If he were standing right here, what would you say? And, th- and this one guy goes into saying, well, he's just got to watch his elbow. A lot of pitchers these days are throwing too many innings, throwing too many pitches. They're having to get surgery on their elbows. They're just not lasting. And so then, you know, at the end, he starts to reveal that he is Matt Harvey, and all of them have this shocked look. And, but w- the one thing that's really neat about that is he got the opportunity firsthand to hear what people thought about him. What were people thinking about him? What were people's opinions of your ability on the baseball field? And so while that was probably a a unique and and a cool situation for him, we have something similar happening with Jesus and his disciples. Now, he's not specifically asking his disciples what they think of him, but more so asking, what are other people saying about me? What's the chatter? What are people thinking about me? Who do people think that I am? What do they think that i am come to accomplish And so he poses this question to his disciples. And it's interesting that he poses this question because up to this point, we've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. We've seen him feed a large group of people with hardly any food. We've seen him heal diseased people. We've seen him cast out demons. Jesus has done some amazing things. And so you've got to know that, that word is getting around about Jesus, that chatter is getting out. People are starting to form opinions about this person who is Jesus. And so now Jesus, who is walking to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, is having a casual conversation with his disciples. And he simply asks, who do people say that I am? What are people thinking about me? And so in verse 28, the disciples respond. And they say, all right, uh, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. And some people are saying that you're Elijah. And even other people are saying that maybe he's just one of the other prophets. And so the first thing that I want us to see from this passage today is that There are many differing opinions on who Jesus is, but only one is true. There are many different opinions about who Jesus is, but only one of those opinions is true and is right. one of the things that I noticed in this passage is that what people are thinking about Jesus at this time is obviously different than what we think about Jesus today. I don't think if you ask anybody that you know who Jesus is, I don't think a single person is going to respond and say, ah, probably John the Baptist or probably Elijah or maybe, maybe he's one of the other prophets. So the answers may be different from first century Israel to 21st century America, but the fact remains that there are still many different opinions about who Jesus is. And so I was trying to just think of a few that I've that I've heard recently. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say things like, "Well, Jesus is just a good teacher. He taught us and to love one another. Um, He just, you know, good good guy. Had some good morals, and he just he's a good teacher. We should we should learn from him." That's one thing that people think or, or people have an opinion about Jesus. Another is that well, Jesus man, he he just set a good example. We should really learn from the example that Jesus set. You see how he treats some of the, mis- the, the mistreated people and the cast-out people. He's really nice and really kind to them, and, and we should be the same. We should be kind and generous to people like Jesus. He's a good example, and we should follow that example. Or others, I've heard people say, well, Jesus, he provides for all my needs. If I have a need, I, I bring it to Jesus, and he provides for me. Maybe even other people are thinking, and I've heard this one a lot. Jesus is the one that we come to when life is hard and life is difficult and he makes it all better. I have heard countless, countless times when people are going through difficulty, when they're going through trials and struggles, their immediate reaction or their immediate thought is, I need to get back into church man, I, I've been out of church for a long time. I haven't really been reading my Bible. I need to get back. I need to, I need to get involved, all right? Because, because if I get back involved in church and if I get, you know, kind of in that routine and, and being a regular, life will start looking up. Life will start getting better. And so people are thinking about Jesus as if I come to him, he can fix everything that's wrong, make it all right, and then life will be happy and joyful again. So just like, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And today, if you were to ask people in your workplace or people in your neighborhood or people that you are friends with, who do you think that Jesus is, you're going to receive a whole lot of different opinions, a whole lot of different thoughts about who Jesus is. And I think that's part of Jesus being such this, a, a big figure. He's done some amazing things. Sure enough, we've seen that when Jesus healed the uh, the man who was infested with demons, he said, "Go and." and uh, he charged them not to tell. And what he did was he went and told, because he was so overwhelmed with what Jesus had done that he couldn't not tell. And so word has gotten out, and people have heard, and so people are starting to form what they believe about Jesus. What do they think about Jesus? But I want to ask us this morning. How do we know what we believe about Jesus? And how do we know that that's right? Because obviously all these people who have different opinions about who Jesus is, they've gotten that opinion from somewhere. Most people are not just sitting in their living room just thinking, what can I think about Jesus? What can I believe about Jesus? It is almost always tied directly to an event in their life, an individual who's had influence in their life, Or something. Uh, Maybe it it was uh, an encounter with a church. But in some way, in some shape, these people have encountered religious people such as you and I. Or they've walked inside the doors of a church. And somehow through that they have formed an opinion about who Jesus is. And so I want us to ask this morning, we boldly proclaim that we know the truth about Jesus. How do we know that? How do we know that our opinion about Jesus is right while all these others are wrong? And I think it comes down to the source of our opinion about Jesus. I wonder what, what it is that you believe about Jesus, where are you getting that from? Do you believe what you believe about Jesus because you read some novel that you picked up? At way. Do you believe what you believe about Jesus because you watched God is not dead? Do you believe what you believe about Jesus because you heard about this 90 minutes in heaven book and somebody told you that, that it was awesome and this little kid had a vision of heaven? Where are we getting what we believe about Jesus is the big question. That is the big debate. Because a lot of people are hearing about Jesus from friends, from co-workers, from media, from books, from all different places. But we have got to know that there is one place where we can know rightly who Jesus is and we can have a correct opinion about him. Don't be relying on media on movies, on books, on hearsay for what you believe about Jesus. It is too important. What you believe about Jesus is absolutely too important to leave it up to Hollywood or hearsay or someone's own personal experience because what we have here is the revelation of God himself. God has revealed himself to us through the Bible. God has told us all about himself through the Bible. But yet, so many of us neglect the Bible. Maybe because it's difficult to read, or it's difficult to understand, or it just seems like such an ancient book, or all we have is a King James Version, and we don't understand half the words, and we just think, what can I learn from this? But it's in the Bible that God has revealed himself to us. He has told us what he is like. He has told us about himself. He has given us the ability to form an opinion about what we believe about Jesus. So then our next question has to be, well, what does Jesus say about himself? So if we claim that we know the truth, we know what is true about Jesus, while all these other ideas about Jesus are just wrong and are just not quite correct, they're not quite there, how do we know that? Well, we know because, what, like I said, God has revealed himself to us through his word. And here's what he has to say about himself. Look with me at verse 31. So this is the, the very next passage. But Jesus begins to teach his disciples. And let's look at and see what he says. Verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. Now, we're going to see here in just a second that this is problematic for Peter. Peter has a problem with what Jesus teaches about himself. But this is really the storyline of the whole Bible. Jesus is teaching us about himself, and he's not teaching us that he's just a good teacher. He's not teaching us that he's just a good example. He's not teaching us that he's just going to give us whatever we want or whatever we think we need. He's not teaching us that he's just going to make everything better if we come to him. Jesus is teaching that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must rise again, This is essential for what you and I have an opinion about Jesus. If your opinion about Jesus, if what you believe about Jesus does not include suffering, death, and resurrection, then your opinion about Jesus is wrong. It is incomplete. It is not who Jesus says he is. We've got to know this. We've got to be convinced that Jesus is not just a genie in a bottle that gives us what we ask for when we ask for it. That's not how he works. God has sent his son Jesus, and he has told us about himself. I don't know if any of you all are into conspiracy theories, but I love them. I think most of them are absolutely ridiculous, but I still think they're fun. And one of the biggest ones, if you get on Netflix or YouTube or or anywhere else, you'll find a lot of conspiracy theories about what happened on 9-11. Was it an inside job? Was it not? Was, Was it partially planned? Was it not? There's a lot of crazy ideas and crazy theories about it. But only one course of events is true. There's only one set of events that is actually factual and true. Now, in a a situation like 9-11, there may not be a single person that knows the actual events. But the point is, so many different people can have so many different opinions about one thing, but that doesn't make all of them true. See, a lot of people in our culture want to say, well, you believe what you believe about God, and I'll believe what I believe about God. Let's just keep it civil. The Bible doesn't leave that door open. Jesus has told us about himself. He has told us that he will suffer, that he will die, and that he will rise again. And if we don't believe that, we are wrong. Our opinion about Jesus is just like those who say he's John the Baptist, or he's Elijah, or he's one of the other prophets. We're wrong. So although there are many different opinions about who Jesus is, only one is correct. Only one is right. And it is essential and it is critical that what we believe about Jesus is what Jesus has told us about himself. It's not open for interpretation. We don't get to choose what we like and what we don't. But my second point this morning is that a confession of Jesus as the Christ is not enough. A simple confession of Jesus as the Christ is not enough. Look with me, at, let's, let's look at our passage again and we'll, we're going to continue down through verse 33. So Jesus is going with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And his, his disciples respond and say, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And so Jesus replies and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now notice, this is a short period of time that is elapsing between these two passages. So Jesus is walking with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them, Who do people say that I am? So they give him these different responses. Then Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. He seems to be the outgoing one. He's he's willing to put his foot in his mouth oftentimes. So he speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. And to this, many of us would read this and say, absolutely, yes, Jesus is the Christ. Peter has got it. He is absolutely dead on right. Yes, go Peter. And we even learn from Matthew's account that Jesus goes ahead and confirms that, yes, Peter is right. Jesus is the Christ. And then immediately, almost immediately after Jesus, or after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, what do we see happening? Jesus begins to teach that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and then rise again. And what Peter does, he says, ah, no, 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 no. Jesus, that is not good. We cannot have this happening. No, no, no. You are too important. You are too essential for all of that to happen to you. Let's let's think of something else. Peter rebukes Jesus for saying this. And then what happens? Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. So here, just in a matter of moments, we see that Peter is confessing that Jesus is Christ, and we say, yes, absolutely, you are right. And then immediately after that, Jesus says, hey, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why are you trying to stop what I'm doing? Why are you thinking that what you think is better for me than what I say? J.C. Ryle, who Josh quotes all the time, and I understand why because he is so fantastic. He's got great great thoughts on the Gospels. He says, We see that it is but a little step from making a good confession to being a Satan in Christ's way. But we love the confession that Peter confesses. I hope that all of you would say the same. That when asked, you would say Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who will save us from our sins. I hope all of us can say with a clean conscience that that is our confession. That we are trusting and believing that that is who Jesus is. But a simple confession is not enough. If all you do is say that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Christ, that is not enough. Because we see here so quickly Peter makes this great confession and then immediately he's saying, I've got a better way, Jesus. I've got a better idea. Let's do it my way. We can't have you suffering and dying. This is not not an option. It's so quick that we can make a good and true and right confession about who Jesus is and then immediately after we are trying to stop what he is doing in the world. A simple confession of who Jesus is is simply not enough. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Don't think that just because we call on the name of Jesus as Lord means that we will be saved. Jesus says you can say Lord, Lord all day. That doesn't change much. A simple pattern of words coming out of your mouth is not what saves you. It's not that we can, we can say certain things so that our, our, our vocal cords vibrate in such a certain way and that, that's, what, that's what does it. That's the magic. That's what saves us. It is not simple words that we say that saves us. It is God himself who saves us. If we stop at just a simple confession of who Jesus is, but our lives do not reflect that he is Lord of our life, there's a good chance that we are just all talk and no walk. American Christianity has has been very influenced by altar calls, by people making emotional decisions. Walk the aisle, pray this prayer, and you are good to go. You will be saved from the hell, the fire of hell. Well, yes, we do have to pray and confess that Jesus is God, but if that is all we do, there's nothing there. A simple confession is not enough to save us. Which brings me to my third point, which is a confession of Jesus must be accompanied with discipleship. A confession of Jesus as Lord must be accompanied with discipleship. Now, I want to I show you something that, that's really interesting that Mark does in his gospel, but it's, it happens in the next three chapters. So we're just going to look at a few short verses, but follow along with me. So here in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus foretells of his, his death and his crucifixion. And he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So here's the first time that Jesus is predicting his crucifixion. Now notice the response, which is in verses 32 and 33, which is Peter. We've just talked about this. But Peter doesn't get it. Peter says, no, hold up, Jesus. This is not the best idea. This is not the best thing you've ever said. Let's not do this. Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't fully understand what Jesus is saying must happen. But then look at verses 33 and following. Sorry, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what we see Jesus doing is he announces that he will die for them. He will suffer, he will die, and he will rise again. The disciples don't get it. Peter clearly does not understand what Jesus means by this. And then Jesus follows that up by teaching them more. Jesus doesn't leave him in the dark. He doesn't leave the disciples in the dark. He begins to teach about what must happen, that we must die to ourselves, and we must pick up our cross and follow after Jesus. So here's the first instance. We see that Jesus foretells his crucifixion, the disciples don't get it, and then Jesus continues to disciple them. The second comes in chapter 9, verses 30. So they went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So once again, Jesus is telling his disciples what is going to happen. He's teaching them that he will die. And then in verse 32, this is obvious. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Mark just flat out tells us, we didn't get it. We have no idea what you're talking about. We're kind of confused. And then look at the response in verse 33. And when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, they asked him, 'Uh, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So for the second time, Jesus predicts his death. The disciples don't get it. And Jesus continues to disciple them. He continues to teach them. And then one more time we see this happen. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Starting in verse 32, sorry. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So, For the third time, Jesus is teaching his disciples what is going to happen. This is who Jesus is. So in in any case, if you were confused about what Jesus came to do and what he came to accomplish, he has said it three times, and Mark has reinforced that. But then look at the disciples' response in verse 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I take this to mean that the disciples have no idea what Jesus is saying. Jesus just said he's going to be delivered over and he's going to suffer and die and rise again. And your response is, hey, how about you do anything we ask? Why don't you let us sit at your right and left hand? Wouldn't that be great? The disciples don't understand. They miss the point. They don't get it. But again, look at verse 38. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And he goes on and on. But three times, in short order, we see Jesus proclaims what will happen. He proclaims his passion, his his crucifixion. The disciples don't get it. They miss the point. And Jesus responds with discipleship. Because Jesus understands that if he leaves his disciples with saying, you are the Christ, that's not enough. It is not enough to simply know and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Lord. We have to submit to his lordship. We have to let him be the lord of our life. And if he is not, then our simple confession means nothing. And Jesus understands this, which is why we see him continue to teach and continue to disciple his followers. It's intentional on the part of Jesus. So, to wrap things up, we must have the correct opinion about who Jesus is. We must know that Jesus and his purpose on earth was not just to be a, a, little, a little fairy godmother for us to give us whatever we want. His purpose in life is to suffer and die and rise again. We must have our opinions about Jesus informed by what he has told us in the scripture. We must have a correct opinion about Jesus. Number two... We must confess Jesus as Lord. It's not that that part is not important. It is absolutely important. We must be able to say with Peter, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are the one who will offer forgiveness to all people. A confession is absolutely essential, but it must also be accompanied with discipleship. And I think this here is the, the hardest and most difficult part of this whole message because discipleship is hard. I don't know if you have ever been intentional about trying to disciple someone or if anyone has been intentional in trying to disciple you, but it is, it is difficult. You've gotta be willing to give your time and give your energy and give your, your mind to another person and to help them and to, to teach them, to spend time with them. Discipleship is not something that's just going to happen casually. Discipleship is intentional. Notice one last thing. Look back at verse chapter 8 verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" Jesus is intentional about using every moment in life to teach his followers. They're just on the way to Caesarea Philippi. I'm sure you travel all the time. Travel to work. Maybe you carpool to work. Maybe you take the Tart bus. Maybe you hitchhike with a a stranger. Whatever you do there are so many times in our life where we just don't really give much thought to what we're going to do, how we're going to use this time to be intentional about discipleship, to be intentional about being a person of prayer, to be intentional about spending time with God. But what we see here with Jesus and his disciples is that they're just just going from one place to another. It seems pretty innocent. Like, well, nothing's probably happening. I mean, they're probably just walking. They're all getting tired and thirsty. But Jesus says, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity for me to teach my disciples. Do you understand the importance of discipleship? I think about uh, every Wednesday that I'm up with the youth, Typically is, is quite a few students up there. And then I, I walk downstairs afterwards and I walk by the e kids room and I'm I'm reminded that there's about ten times as many kids in the e kids room. And even looking out here today, there, there's a lot of young people, a lot of young, impressionable individuals who are part of our church. Do we understand that they need to be discipled? Do you understand that just by looking at how many kids there are in the youth and just by looking at how many kids there are in E-Kids and just by looking at the college group, if we were to put all of those together, we're probably close to 60, 70, 80 kids, 80 young people. And for us to sit here and think that Josh and myself and Joe are going to disciple all of them, that's foolish. It will not happen. It cannot happen. Discipleship needs to be done by everyone. It needs to be done by parents. It needs to be done by grandparents. It needs to be done by friends. It needs to be done by by brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. And it needs to be intentional. I will never forget that day that Renardo stood up here and gave his testimony, and he told us that, that Scott Long taught him two things about sharing the gospel. One, you have to be bold. You have to be willing to step out there and and say what you believe. Be bold. Don't be afraid. you got to be bold. And the second thing he said, you got to be intentional. If you're casual about it, it won't happen. You have got to be intentional. And I think the same holds true for discipleship. Are we going to disciple these young people around us? Are we just going to think that them sitting through a service two hours of the week is enough for them to turn out to be great, godly people. We've got to be bold. And we've got to be intentional. I think the last two questions that, that I have written on the, the paper here are, are two of the hardest questions that I have to ask myself. The first one is, are you being discipled? Am I being discipled? See, oftentimes when we think about discipleship, we think it goes one way. You are discipling someone else. But if no one is discipling you, how are you going to continue growing so you can disciple someone else? Are you being discipled? Is there anyone in your life that is a, a spiritual father to you or a spiritual stepdad to you, or or, or however you want to put it, someone who is pouring their life into yours so that you would grow in godliness. If not, you need to seek someone out. You need to look for discipleship so that you would be growing. And then the second question, are you discipling anyone? Is there anyone that you can say is a part of your life and you are intentionally pouring your life and your knowledge and your godliness into them, that they would grow up to be godly young men and women? These are two of the hardest questions to ask ourselves. But the text here is, is so abundantly clear that the need for discipleship is so evident Thankfully, Jesus does not leave Peter with the confession and say, that's enough, I'm done here, I'm out. But he continues to teach. He continues to pour himself out for his followers. And thankfully, he does. Let's be people who are bold and intentional about discipling those around us, using the relationships we already have The times that going to and from work that we already have. The times working in our yard that we already have. And let's use those times like Jesus does to disciple those around us. That they too might grow up to be godly men and women. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this morning and and grateful for this account that Jesus just simply walking on his way to Caesarea Philippi, used that time to teach his disciples. God, may we see this example. May we learn from it. May we know that we must have a proper, informed opinion about Jesus based on what you have told us in the Scriptures. May we be bold to confess Jesus as Lord, but may we also be a church who knows that a simple confession is not enough. We need to be discipling each other. God, would you help us in that effort? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.